so much of what we do in, and, and how we live our lives are according to the things that we think should make us happy based upon our parents' expectations, our own expectations, evolution, historical accident, social construction, without paying enough attention directly to actually whether it makes us feel good day to day. Hi, my name is Rongan Chasji, GP, television presenter and author of the best-selling books, The Stress Solution and The Four Pillar Plan. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people, both within as well as outside the health space, to hopefully inspire you, as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier, because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of my Feel Better, Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chastji and I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Feel Better, Live More. Now, I just want to give you a quick reminder that my new book, The Stress Solution, Four Steps to Leading a Happier and Calmer Life, is available to purchase now in paperback as well as audiobook. Thank you to all of you who have left reviews so far as I record this intro. There are a staggering 111 reviews on Amazon already. 104 of them have been five-star reviews, which is simply incredible. I'm delighted that the book is helping so many of you reduce your stress levels and improve the way that you feel. Now, today's conversation is all about happiness. And my guest is Paul Dolan, professor of behavioral sciences at the London School of Economics, expert on human behavior and author of the brand new book, Happy Ever After, Escaping the Myth of the Perfect Life. I'm a huge fan of Paul's first book, Happiness by Design, which I read a few years ago. So I was absolutely delighted to have the opportunity to talk to Paul about how his thinking on happiness has evolved over the past few years. In today's conversation, we explore what really makes people happy. And Paul busts several common myths about the sources of our happiness. He shows that there can be many unexpected paths to lasting fulfillment. And some of these might involve living in a way that is contrary to the prevailing social narratives, such as not going into higher education or choosing not to marry, as well as caring a little bit less about living forever. Paul argues that by freeing ourselves from the myth of the perfect life, we might each find a life that's worth living. He shares lots of practical tips that can help us all find more fulfillment and ultimately more happiness. I think you are really going to enjoy my conversation. Before we get started, I do need to give a very quick shout out to our sponsors who are essential in order for me to be able to put out weekly episodes like this one. Athletic Greens are a long-time supporter of my podcast. Now, whilst I prefer that people get all of their nutrition from food, I do recognize that in our busy, stressful 21st century lives, this is not always possible. Now, Athletic Greens is one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. If you are looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you can access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box 
containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. So Paul, welcome to the Feel Better Live More podcast. Hello, mate. You're right. I am good indeed. It's good to see you. It's good to be actually be in your office here. And uh, the first thing I've noticed actually is you've got a a weight bench and some dumbbells <laughs> in your office. Yeah, that's trying to find some time to train when I'm busy. Yeah, and do you do you manage? I do. To- I lo- well, I, I manage to work out five times a week without fail, and I've done that for uh, well a long time now. I don't know, twenty years, fifteen, twenty years. Um, yeah, I just make the time to do it. Oh, fantastic. Well, look, we're going to be talking about happiness today, which is an area of expertise for yourself. I hope so. Yeah, good. Um, you are the Professor of Behavioural Science here at the LSE. Um, and it's a real honour to be here, actually. And actually, we met for the first time yesterday. We, both, we did, last night. Yeah, we were both doing an event, these 5 by 15 events at the Tabernacle. Um, and you opened up the evening, so I got to see you talk for 15 minutes, which was fascinating. Um, Thank you. And for me, it was great to see you talk, actually, because I remember buying your book, your first book, uh, Happiness by Design, yeah. um, when it came out a few years ago. I thought it was a brilliant book. Thank you. And I know you've got your new book out now, which you're sort of doing the rounds at the moment, Happy yeah. Ever After, Escaping the Myth of the Perfect Life. And I want to I want to sort of dive deep into, into the new book in just a second. But to start with, you know, I think for my listeners, it would be useful to, to sort of explain what is happiness? Yeah, so good. So thank you, um, and thank you for your kind words. I quite, I quite enjoyed you too last night. If it's, if I, 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 I don't, I know, I don't have to say that, and it's true. I did. It was thank a good you, talk. Paul. Um, so happiness. Well, I mean, we've had two and a half thousand years of discussion around what happiness is, and so I think it's never going to get a complete answer to that. But I, I see it as located in experiences, in the things that we do and how we feel about the things we do, the things we pay attention to, and the, the people that we're with, and the so it's in our daily experiences. Um, as distinct from in in the narratives and evaluations that we might tell about our lives, right? Because there's basically two ways in which you can measure that: as evaluations, as these kind of you know stories, or more directly in the experiences. I'm much more interested in the experiences. Um, and within those experiences, as I argue in Happiness by Design, I think we've got two main sets of experiences: um, ones that I gather up under the term pleasure, and the others under purpose. Pleasure are all the usual hedonic. Um, adjectives of emotion, um, feelings of joy and excitement and contentment, and the negative adjectives too, associated with pain, anxiety, worry, and stress. But alongside those, those I think sit another category of experiences that are to do with how worthwhile, meaningful, fulfilling, or pointless um, experiences feel. So I argue that happiness is um, the combination of both pleasure and purpose and therefore happy lives are ones that contain the right balance that works for that individual of things they find fun on the one hand and fulfilling on the other yeah i really like that it's a nice way to think about happiness because we are told a lot aren't we by the media that we need to be doing x y and z I don't know why I said Z. We've moved over to North America now. I think I, think, I, think I was uh, interviewing an, an American chap on Skype for my podcast last week. Uh, we're told by the media X, Y and Z are necessary to be happy. Yeah. Um, and, and in your new book in particular, you, you really start to, you know, bust some of those myths, if you will, uh, which is really fascinating. And actually, on some levels, a bit uncomfortable reading various things because yeah, I think... I, 
we, we all do tell ourselves certain stories. Before we get into that, Paul, I just want to just want to cover it. In your first book, you you talk about how we can design our lives so we don't need to think about happiness. And I wonder for people who are not familiar if you, with your work, if you could just sort of summarize, briefly summarize yeah. the sort of, the sort of um, rationale behind that. Yeah, that's a tricky question to answer quickly. So the behavioral sciences, economics, psychology, principally, um, additionally now anthropology and sociology and neuroscience too, are telling us a very basic message that most of what we do comes about rather than being thought about. We make thousands of decisions every day. Most of those are made unconsciously, automatically, fast and without thinking. And actually, that's a good thing, because if we had to think about everything we did, our heads would explode and we'd never get out of bed. So the, play, the, so the extent to which we really deliberatively and consciously think about what we do is very limited. It's mostly done on autopilot through habits. And the brain wants to create habit loops. It wants to create associations in the world that make life easier for itself. It's why sometimes when you want to, whether you have to check whether you've turned the oven off, locked the house, because these are automated processes that when you think about whether you've done them, you don't actually know until you check. So that's what the evidence tells us. Then you've got a lot of self-help books, which are essentially around change your mind about things, you know, be positive, do these things, which, you know, it's kind of hard work. You know you need to do it, but you don't know how to implement it. So drawing on the lessons that you know, basically what we do simply comes about rather than being thought about, how can you design your environment? How can you make your life easier to make those habits easier, to make it easier for you to do the things that make you feel good, to actually be positive by the things that you do and not just by the statements you make? Is that, for example, while we're sitting here you know, in your office and I'm resting my podcast recorder actually on your weights bench in terms of a habit? of working out regularly by yeah. putting a weight bench and two dumbbells in your office, do you think it makes it much more likely that you're going to get a workout in? It does. And also planning it into my diary that, you know, you just make sure that you have time to do it. When, when, when people often say that they don't have time to do things, what they really mean is they don't prioritize it. I mean, often, you know, often we don't have time and people that are working really hard and long hours and, you know, on low pay, they, they, they don't have time. But, but many of us can find the time and make the time. It's just that we don't make it easy for ourselves. The really simple lesson is that if you want to do something, make it easy. It's like what we call in the, in the academic literature, implementation intentions. So you have an intention to change your behavior. We all have all sorts of intentions to do all sorts of things. I'm going to work out more. I'm going to read more books. But unless you have a plan, a detailed plan about how you're going to implement that intention, it doesn't happen. So, you know, reading more books or working out or whatever it is doesn't just happen. There's a series of discrete behaviors that leads you to that final consequence. And it's all about making that easy so that it then becomes encoded in habit and then you just do it without thinking about it. And my, my you know, gym time now is done almost automatically without too much effort and thought. So, yes, you're talking about physical activity. You're talking about, you know, if you want to work out more, if you want to read more, you need to make this easy. I guess that really, if we, we extend it out, why are you working out more? Sure, it could be for your physical health, but overall, I'm guessing working out more improves your levels of happiness. So you, you, you've got something going on in your yeah, life. You made it, it easy and to do something that makes see, you happy. I don't think people... See, so when some of, the, some of the insights are really obvious, but overlooked, right? So listen to more music, go outdoors, spend time with friends. People say to me, well, that's obvious. I know that. I'm like, okay, if it's so obvious, why aren't you doing it then? Yeah. And you're not doing it because you're not making it easy for yourself. And you, you don't have this implementation intention. You don't have a plan that makes those things more likely to get done. So, so what can people, people who are listening to this, who think, 
yeah, I get it. I've heard that before, listening to music, going out in nature, yeah. um, you know, doing some form of physical activity, whatever these things are going to improve my mental health and improve the way that I feel. Yeah, I know that. So I, I often talk on this podcast about what's that gap? What sits in between yeah. knowledge and action? Yeah, it is that implementable plan. So, so um, you know, like, so this, I, this, this bench is a, is very salient. It's a prime in my office. It makes it more likely that I'm going to do it because it's there. Um, surround yourself with people that engage in the behavior that you want to do. We're very influenced by those around us, social norms, peer effects. That's a big one, um, isn't it? That's a really it's big a one. massive effect. I mean, if you're going to be, you know, if you, if you don't, you know, if you don't want to drink so much alcohol, for example, and all your friends go out and get drunk every night, it's really hard not to, right? Yeah. It's, then so you need to sort of redesign some of your networks and peer groups, which can be hard. I appreciate that it can be hard. But if you do that, it's going to just make it much more likely. If you want to go to the gym, find a gym buddy to go with. Have a fixed time, day, place, time, whatever that you go with. It just becomes then routine. Basically, the brain's lazy and it doesn't want to work very hard. And so you need to make it easy for itself to create good habits and break bad ones. I guess in some ways you're saying, let's try and take our willpower out of the equation because... Design power is the is the key thing. Willpower willpower is weak. Yeah. You know, most of us we're, most of us are weak. You know, we'll give in to temptations that are in front of us. So don't put the temptation in front of us. Make the temptation in front of you something that's good for you that you want to do more of. It's going to make it more likely. Yeah. I mean, one thing I've always said to my patients who are trying to let's say improve their diets is guys, look if you're serious about this, I would say make sure you control the environment you can control. Yeah. Your house. Yeah. You know, you're confronted by willpower and temptation every time you step out your front door. If you're serious about cutting out on sugar, let's say sugar and junk food, yeah. get out of the house so that yeah. when you are tired in the evening and you fancy that, that's something a little sweet, there's nothing there. Um, certainly that approach works for many of my patients, it works for me. Um, it's a really sensible piece of advice. And the cravings go. Yeah, they do. You know, they do go. But if you're able to satisfy them very easily, you know, a lot of the times that we do things, why do we do it? Because it's there. Because we can. <laughs> right? So if it's not there and you can't, then it's much more effortful. So make so make what you don't want to do more effortful. Make what you do want to do more easy. Yeah. I, I think It's very basic. It's, it's actually really basic, really obvious but overlooked insights. Yeah. And, and actually, a lot of this is not rocket science, is it? It's actually, we know some of this stuff and actually... It's about trying to inspire people to actually start implementing it into their everyday lives. Yeah, it's a bit. I use an analogy in the book. I'm not sure whether this, this whether this works brilliantly, but it's like you, you spend a lot of time designing a park for a dog, and you spend a lot of effort going into the design of the park and where it can run around and the hurdles it can jump over. And then you let the dog off the lead, and you just let it run around, safe in the knowledge that it's going to have a good time. And it's a bit like doing that with your own life. You step back, consciously decide, put some effort in, get some detailed plans in place. Surround yourself with the right kind of people. Get the right kind of environment for you. Uh, make the right kinds of commitments and then let yourself off the lead. Yeah, I like it. I really like it, actually. It's, it's quite consistent with the way I try and make changes myself with my patients. Um, if we move on from, you know, Happiness by Design to, to, to the new book, which yeah. is, you know, there's so much great content in there. Thank I you. don't think we'll be able to get through all of it in, in a conversation today, but... You talk a lot about these various social narratives, yeah. these these stories that we tell ourselves about happiness, and I wonder if you could just expand a little bit on that. Yeah, so let me just let me um, start with that by finishing with the story from Happiness by Design, which was actually one of the most 
like resonant stories in the book that everyone that picked up on the quote on the paperback is the book that'll make you quit your job. It's the only time I ever talk about jobs once in the book really is, is a friend who worked at media land. Um, she had, we, she and I went for dinner uh, and she spent literally, I mean a whole two hours or however long we were dinner complaining about every single aspect of her job, her boss, her colleagues, her commute, everything was miserable. And then we got up and, and we were leaving dinner and she said, without any irony, I love working at media land. I was like, I looked at her incredulous, but that actually wasn't an ironic thing. Because you remember, if you go back to the beginning, there's basically two ways of thinking about happiness, in experiences and in evaluations. In her experience of her job, it was categorically miserable. In her evaluation, it was a good job. It was somewhere she'd always wanted to work. Her parents were proud. Her friends were jealous. How could she not be happy there when she thought about whether it should make her happy? And, and so much of what we do in, and, and how we live our lives are according to the things that we think should make us happy based upon our parents' expectations, our own expectations, evolution, historical accident, social construction, without paying enough attention directly to actually whether it makes us feel good day to day. So so in many ways, she was telling herself a story that, of course, this job makes me happy. Exactly. She had a narrative of a great, prestigious media organization. um, that She had a very high-status job. How could she not be happy in it, right? That's what she wanted. It's what everyone else wanted for her. Or, or, or I guess, is it what she wanted or is that what she grew up, well, grew up hearing yeah. about yeah. what would make someone yeah, happy? Right. And, exactly. and I think, to be fair, you know, I think many of us can reflect on that in our own lives. And um, it's something I've sort of reflected a lot on over the last few years about what aspects of my job truly make me happy, which aspects don't. And actually trying to be honest with yourself and go, come on, let's just be really frank here. Um, how much of what I'm doing is not just work in anything? How much is actually me or how much is, is a mirror reflection of everything I've seen throughout my life? And I think that's what I should be doing. And so I think you've really hit on something that arguably, as I said right at the start, this is potentially a little bit uncomfortable for some of us. Yeah, I like, so it's interesting you said that because I like the idea, I've always liked the idea of being challenging, right? I think you really, anyway, you really get, change of any kind really is to kind of challenge and question and make people feel a little bit uncomfortable at times and and I kind of think I hope that I do that to people in this book I hope they sort of you know move a bit uncomfortably on their seat at times because even if it, even if it just actually makes them reflect upon their own lives and think actually I am right in what I'm doing I, it is it is making me happy to do these things x y and z um then um you know then it's then then at least I've done something I've, I've made them question and think even if even if they don't change their behavior subsequently when I heard you speak last night, you went through a number of narratives that you expand upon in your book. Yeah. One of them was um, to do with wealth, being successful, and being clever. Yeah. What is that social narrative? Where does that come from? So these are the category of reaching narratives. These are the first three chapters in the book. And they, they're, they're narratives around aspiration. They're narratives around addiction. Right? You can never have enough. Right? Once you start consuming money and and, and, and success and education you can't be too rich successful or too clever you can you just keep going and keep going and keep going past the point actually at which the evidence tells us you should stop poverty um, any lack of status and ignorance are, are not good for happiness but you don't need very much of these things of wealth success and education in order to be happy and so the sort of mantra for the first part of the book summarizes really just enough rather than more pre- more rather than more please so reach a point at which you which you don't need any more 
of wealth, success and education. And it's really difficult, right? Because the whole of our construction is to just keep going and keep going and keep going. People will ask people that are even very successful, what are you doing next? Yeah. <laughs> right? It's kind of like, a question. What are you What's gonna do? next? What's next? It's like, well, why, why not now? I mean, why, why, is that, why does it have to be a next? You know, what are you going to do next? 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 Keep going, keep going, keep going. So hold on, just calm down for a minute. The evidence is very clear, I think, on this, that, you know, there is a point at which you'll, you'll keep going too far. You talk about money. Yeah. And one of my questions is, does money buy you happiness? Um, it, it buys you out of misery of poverty. I mean, so if you're, if you're paying attention to paying the bills, feeding the kids, that's misery making. And so, you, you know, poverty is bad for us. But there comes a point, again, it's like a sweet spot. If you start, if you, once you've got, you know, average levels of income, you're kind of, you know, doing okay. You don't have to worry about money in quite the same way as you might have done before. Um, and that's the sort of just enough point. But then you start getting richer and richer. And then you, first of all, you get sucked into being richer and richer. So you then spend less time with people that you like being with. You have further commutes. You, you work longer, longer hours. All these things associated with being less happy. And you start worrying about your stocks and your investments and whether you've got the right portfolio of investments and things. And then you start paying attention to money in a different kind of way. Um, so, um, you know, there's a, there's a point at which, again, it's kind of time to sort of step off that treadmill. And, and, you, and cover, you cover some statistics. I think they're from America in your book in terms of what is um, what is that sweet spot point. And I know it will be different for all of us. Yeah. But as a rule across a population... You've seen some of this research, haven't you? Yeah. So some of this, some of the evidence, again, it depends on what measures you use of happiness. But you know, by the time you've got about fifty thousand pounds a year, you've probably reached the point at which happiness is going, uh, at which income is going to maximise your happiness. It's worth saying, from an academic perspective, these are correlational data. So there's no randomised controlled trials where we've allocated people to different income amounts. That would be wonderful if we could do that and see what effect it has on their as on their happiness. I need to be a little bit of circumspect about what the evidence tells us. Um, we have an accumulation of correlational data from lots of different countries that tell us r roughly the same kind of thing. Yeah, I, I've seen this quite a lot before as well, that there is that sweet spot that um, I, I sort of, um, I remember watching this uh, 2011 film called Happy. Mm. They, they speak to, I think, a professor of happiness in the US. And I think he talks about this whole idea that basically once, once you've got enough money to put a roof over your head, and feed your family. Yeah, actually, more money is not yeah. correlated with more yeah. happiness, and that's really what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, and also it's really important with the income thing to talk about social comparisons because um, you are certainly made less happy when other people get richer, <laughs> right? Because we compare ourselves to to other people, nearly always upwards, never downwards. Thankfully, more than you know, only more than other people, but upwardsly envying that they have more. Um, the um, likelihood of filing for bankruptcy increases in neighborhoods where lottery winners live really yeah yeah causal causal we we can we can we can see that very clearly from the evidence so you you have someone around you who wins a lot of money you've got to try and keep up with them you? you've got to buy a faster car whatever just so and you, you feel good in yourself well yeah because that's you know we do we we don't really know if i ask you whether you're you're well paid or not you need some reference in which to base that on don't you um, and nearly always the reference is, is, is people like us and maybe people that are just a little bit more, who have just a little bit more than us rather than less. So, so I guess on that, if we sort of extend that out, then happiness in many ways is subjective. In, 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 in every way, it, only, it's only subjective. 
I, it's really interesting when people talk about it because one of the you know, I've heard every possible criticism, I think, of happiness. And one thing is say, well, it's just subjective. I'm like, well, yeah, but that's the point, isn't it? It's, point, it's how yeah. we feel. It's how we feel, right? So um, I've got tattoos and people will ask me, did they hurt? Well, I'm like, well, I have no idea whether they're going to hurt you. I don't, I don't care about the tattoo in itself. It's what pain does the tattoo cause? And that's going to vary from individual to individual. And that's the subjective experience. As you know very, very well, pain medication is based upon how much it hurts, yeah. <laughs> right? And how much it hurts is a subjective experience. So we should, we should embrace that subjectivity much more. Yeah, absolutely. It's not. It's not a weakness. Actually, it is. It is exactly what happens. It is what it is. is. Life. Life is entirely uh, lived through the lens of subjectivity. Yeah, and what, how we experience. And going back to that film, actually, and I, I write about that film um, in my new book, The Stress Solution. I, I write yeah. about purpose and how I feel actually a life lacking in purpose on some level is yeah. inherently a stressful life, and I come up with some sort of strategies to help people kind of figure out how they can start finding their purpose yeah. but i i talk about the that, that film happy and how they start off with a um a rickshaw driver in india right uh and and what's incredible is that he lives in a you know this sort of in a shack really he lives um they don't really have a roof over their heads but you know, he gets up every morning at five. His wife makes him a cup of tea, says bye to his kids, and he goes off and pulls a rickshaw all day. He says people sometimes don't pay him. They spit at him. Sometimes he gets drenched in the rain, but he 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 comes back and there's this beautiful scene. You should you should really watch it, Paul, actually. Yeah. I'll try and send you a link later. Um, he comes back and when he comes back at about 4 p.m., the sun's shining. He sees his two kids. They run out to see him saying, Daddy, Daddy. And he gets interviewed. He says, you know, in this moment, I am the happiest man mm. in the entire world. Mm. And, you know, it goes on a little bit, but it's really fascinating. And you think, you know, you can't help but change you when you watch that. You go, wow, you know, we think material success and doing better in our careers and earning more money is going to bring us happiness. But the reality for many of us is, is, is that it doesn't. Yeah. And it's very hard to swim against the tide of what everybody else is doing. So that's why it kind of, it, it, it requires for me, I think much more than just a, an individual change, it's very hard to step off that treadmill, but a social change for us to have a different conversation about, you know, what kinds of jobs we value, where we where we seek and reward status, um, and the kinds of competitions in life that we that we uh, set up. You know, we if we are going to be driven to compete with others, let's do it on attributes that are socially beneficial. So what are those attributes that you would like to see society value more than they currently do? Well, pro, uh, acting in pro-social ways. Um, when we get into the third part of the book, I've got a chapter on altruism, um, which is, again, we have this narrative that at least some of what we do should be selflessly motivated, right? the idea that we help other people for purely altruistic reasons. That's absolute nonsense. Anything we do has some personal gain in it somewhere. Even if you just, even if you're not shouting about it from the rooftops, even if you're not telling everybody how much you help people, you feel better about yourself. You just walk a little bit taller. Yeah, and that's a really good thing to celebrate. That's a really good benefit. Well, what, can you can you expand on that story you told last night about David Beckham? Because I think yeah. that'll be great for the listeners yeah. to, to really understand this point. Well, so David Beckham has done a huge amount of work for UNICEF. Um, all of his salary when he was at Paris Saint Germain went to the Beckham Seven charity. Uh, and that's a good thing. And then uh, his emails to his agent, I think, get hacked. And he is a little bit less than complimentary of the honours committee because he's quite like a knighthood now. He's done all this work. And he sees other people getting knighthoods for things that he doesn't consider to be quite as worthy as what he's done. 
and he uses some very choice language about what he thinks about that. And people, led by Piers Morgan mostly, jump straight in as if this completely undermines all of what Beckham's done. Because now maybe a little bit of what he's done might, retrospectively, I doubt he went into doing this work thinking I'm going to get a knighthood from it, yeah. but now having done it, he, he wouldn't quite mind one. It's now un, undone by that selfish intention. How absurd. I mean, the consequences, the actual consequence, the facts of the outcomes are that he's changed significant numbers of children's lives in ways that they would greatly appreciate whatever whatever his intentions. Motivations, yeah. And we spend too much time thinking about intentions and motivations with altruistic behavior and not enough about the consequences. Um, and this comes through in all sorts of different ways. We have virtue signaling. We have all these things that kind of show our well-meaningness <laughs> without actually whether we've actually done any good or not. Yeah, in many ways, you're talking about being judgmental, aren't you? You're talking about how we are, we like to judge others. We like to think, oh, God, he shouldn't be doing it for that reason. And and as you say, he probably isn't doing it for that reason. But after he's achieved so much, he probably thinks, actually, that all these yeah. guys are getting a yeah, knighthood. Maybe yeah. I should get a knighthood. Yeah, why not? Um, give him one, by the way. If anyone on the Honours Committee listens to your <laughs> podcast, give Beckham his fucking knighthood. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I think what's powerful <laughs> for that story and... I've not yet read the section on altruism in your book. So on the train home tonight from London, I think I'm going to dig into that. But um, it's amazing to me, Paul, how many similarities there are and how you talk about happiness and how I talk about health. And what I mean by that is, yes, we can, we can try and inspire people individually to make changes. Mm. You know, I talk about the health changes people can make on an individual level. And you're saying that people can actually try and design their lives for happiness. But ultimately, if you're swimming against the tide of the people around you, the communities, what society expects, yeah. actually, it's very, very hard. Um, and and I think it, it, it is incredible that, you know, actually, one of the reasons that this podcast is called Feel Better, Live More is mm. that my belief is from nearly 18 years in practice now is that health is not really just about health. It's... What I try and do is help people feel better uh, when they come in and see me. And it, not just so it reduces their risk of getting ill in the future, mm. also that they can live, um, you know, that their symptom can go away. But I genuinely believe, and, and again, you may, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. I genuinely believe when people are feeling better or feeling as good as they can, they actually get more out of their lives. They're more, um, you know, they can do better things in their free time. They've got more energy to enjoy their weekends and do the things that maybe they couldn't do in the week. And we both seem to recognize the importance of purpose. I talk about purpose um, in, in the stress solution. I talk about it as a way of reducing stress levels. Mm. You talk about it as a way of actually improving our happiness. It's the same thing. It's, it's a, not it's separate. A, it's the same thing. No, no, it's absolutely the same thing. And, 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 and it sounds like we're saying the same thing in terms of it's in what we do. It's in the experience we have, not the stories we tell. Like, so, so the purpose that I get from being a dad isn't in the story I tell about being a dad. It's in the stuff that I do with my kids that feels like it's meaningful. And uh, that's why I've always, that's why to come back to the beginning of the conversation is why I've been very interested in purpose as an experience and not just as an evaluation. Um, so yeah, it's, it is. That's, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. Um, the, the, the health thing is really interesting though, because, and happiness. And, you're, and I think you're, you're absolutely right again that we don't just, I don't just care about happiness because it's good in itself although that is important, it's also good for other things that we might care about too. Generally, happier people are healthier, more pro-social, um, 
are more productive. All the things that we want for a society are more conducive, come about more likely when we have um, happier so, populations. So, so, so promoting happiness across a society yeah, or is very important. Your, I mean, I think the stress thing is really important. I think reducing misery. Yeah. I think that's really important. We might use the same kind of measures and we might be talking the same language, but I think that misery thing is really important because you know, it's pathological, isn't it, to want more suffering in the world, either at the individual level or as a policymaker. And uh, alleviating that kind of suffering is not only good for the people that you alleviate it for, it has you know, these kinds of spillover effects for others too. I want to move to social media because yeah. um, you mentioned earlier in this conversation how, you know, let's say, income. You know, We may feel we're earning enough, unless we're surrounded by people who are earning a lot more than us. And then we yeah. start comparing ourselves to them. And, and, I, and I immediately thought of how is social media playing into this? Because social media is just, you know, competition gone crazy in, in so many ways that we, yeah. you know, people are always comparing themselves to other people. So in your research, have you seen at all any data suggesting that since the advent of social media, we have become less happy? Well, we've seen some things consistent with the magnification of comparison and competition. I mean, the the increase in expenditure on things like weddings, expensive holidays um, has gone up. But it was probably going up anyway. It's very hard to establish the cause and effects there. Okay. But now you can still celebrate these things, right? It's not only that I get married and show off in front of the 100 people that are there. I can now show off in front of tens of thousands of people by posting it on Instagram. Um, and so we get into an arms race, essentially. Is that problematic? Um, well, it's problematic. It's actually problematic if you want a successful marriage. There's good evidence now that shows the more you spend on your wedding, the more likely you are to get divorced. Not only do you get in debt, often for it and that's going to cause all sorts of arguments thereafter but it's a signal you're signaling this extrinsic reason for marriage you know, like look how much we love each other whereas actually if you if you really do love each other you just do it quietly and the rest of the world doesn't have to know yeah i think i think you've you've, you've touched on a really important point there which really is extrinsic motivation versus yeah. intrinsic motivation yeah. you know how many things are we doing for that innate pleasure that we get from doing it or how many things are we doing yeah because we like the social approval that that gives us yeah it's worth saying that, i mean the, the the evidence on that is not entirely clear and it, we can we can all again we can tell stories and we can construct narratives around things being intrinsic that might actually be extrinsic and vice versa and, and actually for most of what we do there's a lot there's a considerable amount of ambivalence you know pretty much anything actually is not unequivocally good or bad certainly the health behaviors that we're talking about, right? You know, there's, there's yeah. kind of, it's very unclear whether this is on balance, good or bad for me. So we can construct narratives, but, but there's certainly something, notwithstanding those caveats, significant in that kind of just doing it because it's good rather than because I can just show off about it. But to deal directly with the social media question, we have no randomized control trials that show the cause and effects on happiness or anything else of social media. So we have, Correlational data. The correlational data that exist are highly suggestive of significant negative effects on the well-being measured in a whole range of ways, including self-harming behaviors, not just reports of anxiety and depression amongst young girls. Teenage and sometimes now pre-teen girls who have been exposed to social media more recently, right? So this is, this is the iGen. Yeah. The millennials got their smartphones when they were 18, 19, when their brains had pretty much developed. It takes till about 25 till your brain fully grows. But 
you know, they're at a stage where their brains are pretty much adult brains. Teens and preteens are getting smartphones and they're on social media at an age where their brain is still developing. They've become addicted. It's problematic. And it's problematic, especially for girls, it seems. We've seen a massive spike in anxiety, depression and self-harming behaviours amongst young girls since iGen got smartphones. Not the same patterns emerging in boys. Now, it's correlational. There could be all sorts of other things that might explain it, but I would be pretty confident it's causal. Yeah, uh, and this really uh, echoes what I'm seeing in practice uh, as, a, as a GP. I see this all the time. Uh, you heard last night the story I told about mm. Uh, mm. that 16-year-old chap. Fantastic story. It makes you a bloody good GP, by the way. Oh, no, well, because you are. You're, you're going, it's, you know, it's like you were understanding the etiology of why he manifested these you know these these actions not not just treating the symptoms of yeah and that's 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 generally what i'm trying to do is try with uh, all of my patients but also one of the reasons i do this podcast is to help by having these sort of interesting conversations with different people hopefully people listening are going to think oh i wonder if that's relevant for me i wonder if i could change that oh i wonder if that is one of the root causes behind the way that i feel and um I really do see social media. Now, no, clearly, it's slightly biased because if someone's got a brilliant relationship with social media yeah, and they're happy and well, I ain't going to see yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, my view yeah. is slightly um, yeah. coloured by the fact that I'm a doctor seeing sick people. By yeah, and but large. there are lots of people who really enjoy smoking, right? Yeah, there are lots of people who would willingly make the trade-offs with their life to smoke. That doesn't mean that on average, on balance, it's harmful. It, it is probably harmful, right? I mean, we, we kind of would agree that probably people would be happier and healthier. And actually, the evidence on happiness is, is quite clear. Well, so they would be healthier. I'm sure healthier. some people would argue that actually and they they're happier be, when they're smoking. Well, actually, the evidence on that is that smoking taxes uh, increase the happiness of smokers as well as non-smokers. Really? Because, well, they're being nudged away from doing something that many of them wouldn't like to do. So, so, well, so actually, once you get over the addiction craving... You know, the, you know, the craving of the nicotine, then you actually get over wanting to smoke. But still, there will be significant minority of people who do, whose lives are better from being able to smoke, just like there will be significant numbers of people whose lives are better with social media in it. On balance, I suspect for some um, uh, technologies, on, on average, they're going to be harmful. It's really interesting that the tech, all the tech giants None of them let their children I know. <laughs> use social media, the kinds of things that they're sending to everyone else. And I do think we're going to see social media use for certain platforms like we come to see tobacco. Yeah, why I agree. We, why, didn't we do, why didn't we do something about it a bit sooner? I, I think there is already starting to be a slight backlash against social media in, in certain sections of the population. I've certainly changed the way... Um, I, I interact with it on social media. I, d- I have not come off it. I'm on three channels. I post relatively regularly, but I'm quite careful with how much I go on to yeah. look at it because I am aware. I think one of the big problems for me is, um, particularly when we talk about children and their brains haven't developed yet, or yeah. even adolescents are not fully developed. Yeah. It's this whole idea that actually now we're sort of, we're, our, our attention is constantly being fractured. We're constantly jumping from thing to thing. We, we, many of us are losing that ability to delay gratifications, actually concentrate and have some deep focus on something for a period of time. Mm. And I think that is something that it, it's a very important skill. You know, being able to delay gratification has been associated with positive life outcomes. Mm. Yet I see that many of us are losing that ability with the way that we're actually doing things. And I think if we could just get back, if, if we could encourage more people to, you know, do things that, you know, maybe we were doing 10 or 15 years ago, you know, not, you know, things like, you know, playing chess or 
playing board games or playing a sport, things that actually require us to learn a new skill and concentrate for a prolonged period of time. Yeah, I'm, and, you know, there, there are, you know, critical social media because it always is, depends on how we use things, not 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 what they are. You know, there are things that, you know, so so we do get the contagion effect of happiness when other people post good things and that makes us feel good because we get a contagion of them feeling good. So, but again, it comes back to doing it in ways that broadcast and show off things that are good for us and for society. So having learned a new sport, right, or playing chess, it's the kind of thing that's probably not bad sharing with your friends, right? And you can all share these things. You can all share in these experiences. And that then we start using social media in ways that are good for us and not and not and not harmful. Paul, you mentioned a lot in this new book about the various um, stories we tell each other. We tell each other as friends, as um, you know, inhabitants in our collective society. And you say that actually happiness isn't a result of a lot of these narratives. And, mm. and obviously, we're not going to get to go through all of no, those narratives no, in the conversation no. today. They're, they're all there in the book for people to read. Is there a problem with us telling ourselves stories? Is that not what we do as humans? Is that not the way we get through day to day by telling ourselves yeah, stories? Yeah, so, so I'm distinguishing between personal narratives, the telling of stories to ourselves, for ourselves, about ourselves, from social narratives, which are the expectations about how we ought to live according to these stories. So you ought to get married and have children, for example, right? And you're not a fully-fledged grown-up until you do. That, that's the societal... We treat, we treat of... people in the workplace... We treat single people in the workplace in ways that you'd never get away with treating people by gender or by race. They get second dibs on holidays. Um, they're seen as... As if you ask people... Um, if you give people a, a set of vignettes around the characteristics of people and you just basically make them the same person except one's married and one's single, people judge the married one as being much happier, as being more virtuous as being a better person. Uh, and I'll tell you who they, who, which single people they think are the worst off, the least happy, the least virtuous, the least good, are the single people who have chosen to be single. Not the single people who are single because they can't find somebody yet. They're okay. But the single people that have chosen to be single, we really dislike those people. So you mean as a society, we judge them as being not happy? or we, we just Yeah, don't we like judge it. them as not as happy. We judge them as not as virtuous. We judge them as not as good. What's the reality? Because we don't like them. The reality is, is the complete opposite. Um, as I've said before, um, I feel I've said this a lot the last few days, um, often the, the, in these data, the happiest and healthiest people who with the longest life expectancies are women who have never married and never had children. I think that'll surprise people. People who have chosen to have not married, yeah. Or do you, does the research sort of yeah. elaborate well, on that's that? Hard. It's hard to find that in the data. Um, yeah, some data. Yeah, it's, it's hard to, it's to to know that for sure. Sure. Um, but but when when they haven't and when they haven't had children, it's a good decision insofar as their health and happiness is concerned. It's interesting that because I think a lot of us, as you say, we do judge people like that as a society, and we might expect them. To have lower levels of happiness. Yeah, but we just so so we judge. But I'm gonna just draw on this um, judgment point a little bit because it's really interesting. I, th- I think because it creates the environments within which these narratives fester and breed is that we not only judge people because we think they should be living lives how we th- think they should and how maybe how we are right. So I'm married with kids. Everybody else should be, but also they might we might be a little bit jealous of them living lives that we'd ideally like to live if only we could free ourselves of the stories yeah. so um 
in a study of homophobia, you basically established one of two groups. You're, you're either in the more homophobic group or the less homophobic group as men. Then you're exposed to gay sex and penile blood flow is measured. And you see more penile blood flow in the homophobic group than you do in the non-homophobic group. They're more aroused from gay sex if they're homophobic. Well, that's pretty damn interesting, isn't it? Because I don't like gay people, not because I don't like gay people, but because actually I kind of wish I was. And I think with some of these narratives, it's a bit like that. I wish I could be more like them, but I can't because I feel constrained. So I'm going to bloody hate them. Yeah, it's interesting. I've got, <laughs> I've got a couple of mates who um, are, are married uh, and they have chosen not to have kids. They both do really good jobs. They, you know, they're earning decent money. They go on holiday every few weeks to wild, exotic locations. <laughs> and they have made a choice not to have children. And yeah. it's incredible when I, when I talk about them and a lot of people you know you know refer to them i'm not going to mention their names they they say actually you know what part of them think oh god that sounds great wouldn't it be so good <laughs> but they almost can't tell themselves because like, yeah. they're married they've got kids and it, it's almost like on one level they're not allowed to think that and there's sort of this yeah. th this clash between what you know, it's all right to say that. It's all right to think that, that actually, you know what, May maybe that would have been a better choice, but we can't really do that. It's not palatable, is it, in society to think like that? No, because we expect that people, you know, it's, I've, I've talked a lot in, in Happiness by Design and in, and, and in talks about the evidence on children. You know, the evidence on children is that they bring you moments of joy with very long periods of stress, worry and anxiety. And any honest parent would be honest about that. I was shocked by some of the vitriol I got for making that very basic point. Bad parent, they felt sorry for the kids. Because I, was, because I wasn't conforming to this narrative that tells us that, you know, our kids ought to just make us happy all the time. And, and when they don't, we feel like a failure then, don't we? Because we're yeah. like, oh my God, my kids are, you know, I still, you know they're, they're three and they're still, they're still not bringing me all this unbounded joy that I thought they might. It's like, and well, you actually, just, that's quite normal. Just in case people are wondering, <laughs> you are... A father, you've I'm, got some I'm kids. I'm a father of, of a kid at 10 and 9, and, and, and talking about them now is very different to talking about them when I was um, writing and uh, doing the tours around Happiness by Design because they were, they were four or five years younger then. They are unequivocally much more fun now to be around than they were then. Well, what's interesting <laughs> to me is that you've got a lot of vitriol from people because your narrative and your perception didn't really fit theirs, and therefore th th there's this sort of dissonance. But actually, it's okay for people to have different experiences. It's okay, for example, that you might say, actually, they were really tricky four or yeah, five years ago, but they're great now. And I might say, you know what? I've loved being a dad the whole yeah, time. Yeah. As long as we're being honest with exactly. our own experience. I think that's, you're totally right. It doesn't you're really totally matter, right. does it? You're totally right about that. I don't, like, I don't care what you do or how you feel, as long as it's not impacting me in harmful ways. So why should, I mean, I, it's extraordinary. I, don't, I, don't, I really genuinely don't care what pursuits people have in their work lives, in their leisure lives, as long as it's making them feel good and it's not harming other people and harming the people that they care about or care about them. That's, that's just a, that just seems to me to be so self-evidently obvious. And yet, and yet we can't help ourselves. We can't help ourselves with our own children as well, right? Can we say like, I want, I, want, I want my kids to be happy. That's what all parents will say. And then they'll start going into all the things that they think they ought to be doing in order for them to be happy. Yeah. They don't actually want them to be happy at all. They want them to do the things that, that the parents think will make them happy. Uh, this is a, <laughs> which is very a, different. This is an entire different <laughs> podcast conversation, which I think we're going to have to have at some point. Um, Sorry, I, I just I, took I us know, off where you wanted to go. Hey, hey, no, not at all. I mean, look, this could go on for another hour easily, but I know you're on a busy press tour because you've written such a great book. So many people well, want to talk to you. you too, mate. You too, mate. You've got a 
bloody successful <laughs> book out there as well. We're, it's like, it's sort of quite, I am. So we're, you know, obviously... I can't compare myself to you. That's like, that's like upwards. You're still studying more than I am, so I don't, oh. be, don't be doing that. We're not, compar- <laughs> we're not comparing ourselves. No, but if we are going people. to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to find some other social comparison because you'll make me... You'll just basically make me feel like shit. Oh <laughs> hey, but I honestly hope not, and I genuinely am a big no, of supporter not. of your work. Of I think it's fantastic. Not. Just to finish off, before yeah. you go to your next interview... Um, there's a question actually you know what I'm going to have to slip it in because it's so important you t- yeah. you're talking about these narratives that we tell ourselves and I know lots of parents listen to this yeah. podcast in your book you mentioned actually one of the small things we can start doing now with our kids to help yeah. change that narrative and I wonder if you could just share that well you, you've you've just read it what, what are you referring to? <laughs> I'm referring to how we as parents can um, start to teach our kids that actually life is not all about money and that maybe it's about just enough rather than, you know, many of us as parents, we we put our own, the narratives that we've been told, we start putting them on onto our kids that actually if you do this, you'll get a better job. If you do this, you're going to earn more money. And maybe we as parents can play a role at starting to change that narrative. Yeah, and we can. And also to get them to think about how they might use their time and money differently. Um you know, I, I talk in, I talk in, I think in this book actually about um, uh, using uh, a fee from a gig to give to charity, and we're talking to the kids about what kinds of charities they thought we should give the money to, the best ways to give the money, the best way to deliver the benefits to the people that we were giving it to, um, to actually eventually speaks to the altruism chapter again to take empathy out of the equation. Now, empathy is nearly, uh, we're, I know we're tight for time, but it seems like this is an important answer. Empathy is, is nearly always seen as a good thing. If you can put yourself in the shoes of somebody else, then you care about them. But for you to put yourself in someone else's shoes, it helps if they have the same size feet. And that leads us to then care more about people that are essentially more like us. And then use our, ways in, uh, use our uh, pro-social time and energies in ways that are quite parochial. Yeah. Instead, we need compassion not empathy. Compassion is a more detached account of caring and where we really then think about where we're going to do the most good with our time and money and not just what people are like, what, what people like us are we going to do the most good for. Yeah, that's really profound actually, more focus on kindness and compassion. Kindness and compassion, kindness empathy. and compassion. And kindness and compassion, as you know only too well, are really highly associated with happiness. Yeah. And, Gratitude good and good health and good health and good health. health and good health longer healthier happier lives or whatever the title of your podcast is that's that's exactly what you get from kindness compassion gratitude yeah so we should be we should be encouraging that more with our friends our colleagues uh, but also with and, our children and when we encourage social mobility or or, or 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 advancement and attainment we're not talking about any of those things we're not talking about any of those things we're talking about better jobs better jobs that society deems to be better jobs because they're higher status and higher paid yeah. We're not talking about any any things that real mobility would be about being more mobile to be more kind to be more grat- you know to be more grateful to be more compassionate. Paul, I want to continue on the kindness and compassion uh, topics and social mobility, which you write a lot about in your book on a future podcast. So yes. on air, I'm going to ask you now if you'll commit to it at some point. Oh, you're going to really see this is one of the important um, implementation intention plans. Commitment, making a public promise. I'm going to make it in front of you know your <laughs> increasing millions of podcast listeners. I'm going to make a public promise to do this again, but differently next. Yeah, time. we'll do it for sure, definitely. Just two final questions, just before your next interview. Yeah. Um, since you started researching happiness, yeah, has the research caused you to change your behaviour in any way? Oh, that's 
way too insightful a question for me to answer right at the end. Yes or no? I, don't, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. It's going to sound a bit grand to say I felt like I was doing all right before, but I think that's all I right. Think I've, I think I think I'm I think I'm yeah I think I'm um, doing all right. I've you know the research has backed up what you're doing. It, yeah, it has. I mean, there are some interesting things that were different. I didn't know that income that happiness might actually decline at the very highest incomes. I thought it might not increase. I didn't know that it, it might fall. I didn't know that divorce in highly um, confrontational relationships can be good for children rather than harmful for children. We tell a story about divorce being harmful for kids. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. So there are there are bits of the evidence that have made me yeah. uh, question some of what I thought I knew to be true. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Paul, just to, just to finish off the podcast now, what I love to do with this podcast is to inspire people at home who are listening uh, say at home, they could be on a walk, they could be at the gym, they could yeah, be they're probably commuting. Yeah, probably not going to be at home doing this. Um, but, better things to do at home. Exactly. But, but the goal <laughs> is to really inspire them to try and make some changes in their own lives. And I wonder if you can leave them with some, I don't know, three or four top tips on how they can start to get more happiness well, you know in their lives. that you said last night that was absolutely right amongst everything else that you said is that small changes, big effects. Um, and this, I think, is consistent with both of the books now, is it's not in the big stuff. Don't think about what you're going to change that's going to be big. Think about what you can change that's going to be small. It is about sweating the small stuff. It's about the things that you do on a day-to-day basis that are going to be, that you know, listeners know, that are obviously going to make them feel happier, listening to more music, listening to your podcast more. Well, then just do it, but have a plan, an implementation intention plan that makes that more likely without then having to chase all these other things that you think are going to make you happier if you ever get there, which you might not. And even if you do, they're not going to make you happy. Yeah, Paul, I think that's brilliant advice to leave people with. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank, Thank you for you writing so such much, a mate. brilliant book. Thank you so much. That was time very well spent. It's made me very, very happy. I'll see you very soon. Thank you very much. That concludes today's episode of the Feel Better, Live More podcast. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation and feel that you might be able to apply some of Paul's tips in your own life. As always, do let us both know what you thought of today's show by getting in touch on social media. If you want to continue your learning experience now that the podcast is over, do head over to the show notes page where you can also see everything that we discussed today, as well as get links to some brilliant articles that Paul has written on happiness. You can check it all out at drchatterjee.com forward slash 54. Now, if you do feel that you're living each day on a treadmill, on autopilot, and that life is happening to you rather than you being in control, I really would encourage you to pick up a copy of my new book, The Stress Solution. I wrote this book to help people combat the really common problems that I see day in, day out in my life as a GP. How do you take back control of life and start living it on your own terms? How can you feel calmer and more in control? These are all themes that I write about in the book, as well as leave you with lots of practical tips that I have used for years with my patients to really good effect. You can order The Stress Solution in all the usual places, in paperback, in ebook, as well as an audiobook, which I am narrating. If you enjoy my weekly podcasts, one of the best ways that you can support them is by leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. You can also help me spread the word by taking a screenshot right now and sharing with your friends and family on your social media channels. 
or of course you can do it the good old fashioned way and simply tell your friends and family about the show. I really do appreciate your support. That's it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back in one week's time with my latest episode. Remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.